Welcome to episode 52 of Gen Music. It's a podcast presented by Fancrafts from Gray and Icy to Cowbell, Illinois. I'm Kevin Goldstein. Joining me, returning to the co-host chair, is the, I don't know, it's the, either the editor or chief or the managing editor. Maybe she's both <laughs> of Fancrafts from, I'm sure, much sunnier and much warmer Arizona. It's Meg Rowley. Meg, how are you? I'm well. I'm still just the managing editor. I haven't received a, a promotion. So far as I know, anyhow. Is editor-in-chief, a, is, that, is that a promotion over managing editor in the editor world? I think that if you are at a publication that has it in your editorial sort of um, chain of command, then yes. It isn't a position that we've ever had at Fangraphs. Um I, I think that if we were to to make our um, editorial chain a little more robust from our personnel perspective, which isn't a criticism of our existing editors, but just, you know, we run kind of lean on that side of the site, mm-hmm. um, that the the sort of natural um, move would be for me to move up to, to editor-in-chief and then have a, a managing editor sort of sit uh, beneath me. But um, But yeah, I don't know. We've just never, we've never had that. I don't know. I'm the I'm the person who bugs you guys about copy and stuff. So <laughs> that's too long to put on my LinkedIn. So, so if you're listening to the show, make sure to uh, send an email to support at fangraphs.com or just tweet right at <laughs> fangraphs about Meg needing to be editor in chief. I'm, I'm um, content where I am. It's fine. <laughs> we're going to have a very not fun show for you because that yeah. baseball's not fun anymore. And we'll talk about that and also talk about, um, of course, the lockout and legal trials and stuff like that. And then to cheer you up, our special guest is going to be Lincoln Mitchell, who is kind of baseball adjacent, but is actually also an expert on things Russian and things going on, more importantly, kind of in the Western, what used to be the Russian Empire. And, and you know, in, in a world where you hear about the Ukraine every day, he's going to explain to us what's going on in the Ukraine as if we were five years old. Uh, Then we'll talk about our musical guest. We'll talk, we'll get into your emails. We'll catch up with Meg and we'll do stuff like that. And it'll be like a whole show and everything. You ready to get into this, Meg? Yeah, let's go for it. It's Thursday. It's 12.04 p.m. Central Time. And I believe that we have talks scheduled right now. Now. uh, Between the, the, the union and the owners. And it's good that they're talking. Do you have any optimism at this point whatsoever that that we're going to? It just feels like I keep saying like progress is slow. Like, wait, yes, we've taken baby. Every time it feels like we've taken baby steps and you can be frustrated with the with the with the size of those steps. But they are baby steps forward. Um. Am I optimistic about what? That we will have a baseball season? Yeah, I remain optimistic that we will have a season. Am I optimistic that it will start on time? 
no, I'm not optimistic about that. I didn't think it would start on time uh, in December. I'm very sure it won't start on time now. I think we'll lose more games than I thought we would uh, in December. So that's disappointing. Um, I think that like the way I would characterize the most recent proposal that the owners put forth is that, and I think um, Joe Sheehan used this phrase, that it is a, it's a December proposal in February. Mm. Now, the fact that it is sort of indicative of some incremental progress, I suppose, is uh, is good. Um, eventually, you just keep having the distance between the two sides and arrive at something. But there are elements of it that are still uh, quite radical from, I think, the ownership side uh, and the fact that they have not uh, started to approach something more akin to what I expect a final deal to look like, particularly when it comes to the competitive balance tax is discouraging. So... I don't know, man, like we're going to just be sitting here and I get to enjoy um, less intense traffic in the valley. But that seems like uh, it's not quite worth it as a trade off to having baseball. <laughs> so I think Joel Sherman put it well on last week's show when he said the owners say, do you want 50 cents? When the players say no, they say, well, how about half a dollar? Right. Um, you know, right. and, and uh, it, we got an email from Andrew and I, I think it's important to talk about. And <clears throat> we have emails kind of spurs throughout this one. Um, and Andrew wrote, as labor negotiations continue apace, I find myself more and more pessimistic about the idea that we get a 2022 Major League Baseball season at all. I've noticed that you think it's a near certainty that we'll play at least most of the season. Not to be a downer. Hey, you're going to fit in with the show, Andrew. <laughs> but why the optimism? Does it seem like we're sprinting? Doesn't it seem like we're sprinting towards no Major League Baseball this year? And neither side seems remotely close to saying chicken? Um I can see why you think that. I still think that neither side has a ton of leverage right now in the sense that, again, like players don't get a paycheck till April. Right. Like they're not losing anything. And the owners have some, I would call them minor pains in the asses about spring training getting delayed. And I know Bill Shaken wrote a thing about it. There's been some other stuff about how, you know, towns in Florida and Arizona are upset about the yeah. lost revenue right now. But like yeah, I, in the big scheme of baseball, it's a minor pain in the ass for the owners. They don't really have a problem until the season gets going either because that's when the real revenue flow starts. And so until there's that kind of tightness, like I don't think it's time to be a total pessimist about this. But at the same time, I, I and maybe I'm being daft and maybe everyone else is being daft. I don't know anyone who thinks we're like on a path to a disaster like you talked about. I still think this whole thing's just too fucking big for it to go away. Yeah. At the end I, of the day, it's just too big. Yeah. I, I, I have two, I'm of two minds on this and I, they are not equally weighted at this point. <laughs> so that's the good news. But on the one hand, I think that when you are able to sort of set aside the, the rhetoric and the obvious, um, distrust and animosity between the two sides and really like get down to evaluating how far apart they are not philosophically because I think that they remain um, quite far apart philosophically on things like player compensation and and true sort of competitive balance um, but when when you set all that aside and you look at the actual numbers and the amount of money that's involved they're not that far apart really like when you put that the amount of money that is in dispute 
in terms of say league revenues um right. i think and you that, also start dividing by 30 and think about it on a per team right level. it's not that much it's just really not that much i think that um you know when the most recent round of proposals from uh mlb came through uh joe sheehan did some math on this and ben clemens has sort of looked at discrete aspects of the proposals and um you know joe's conclusion was that you know if if the owners were to come to the table today and decide, you know what, we're everything you want, you get to the players, which obviously isn't going to happen. But if they were to do that, you're looking at something like uh, 4% of league revenue. It's just not right. that much money in the grand scheme. And as you said, on a per team basis, really not that much. Um, but so, so that could lead you to be optimistic because when you, when you weight that against what could be lost, um, not only in in gate revenues and in the contracts that individual teams have with their RSNs, but when you look at national TV money and merchandising right. and all that stuff, it would seem as if the the sheer tonnage of of money that could be lost tips the scales very dramatically toward a resolution because that is so much more than what is really at stake here, particularly after the players took. Um, you know, age-based free agency for some players off, you know, when you look at what they have asked for, they are, are generally operating within the existing structure of the past CBA. So that makes me optimistic. And that side is is winning out for me right now. The part yeah, of me... Go oh, ahead. The part of me that I only entertain at like three in the morning, <laughs> the like d- darker side of this, is that it's not that much money. So what are we doing? Right? The fact... <laughs> The fact that the owners are willing to dig in and do some amount of damage to the sport by losing games, even April games, which no one likes to go to. <laughs> right, right. You know, like that, I, I thought that, that Passon put this well when, when you talked to him on a prior episode, like part of, part of what we're dealing with here is that April baseball is crummy for a lot of markets, right? Their attendance yeah. is low, the weather stinks, kids aren't out of school yet. And so, you know, if if the weather in April was like it is in July, I think that the course of this negotiation would actually have gone maybe pretty differently because that would be real and more meaningful sort of gate receipt that they are in danger of losing. But the fact that they're willing to dig in on this amount of money suggests to me that like their view of what the baseball revenue landscape should be is that they will they will concede not one dollar more than they are truly forced to to the players and that 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 opens a door to some amount of intractability on ownership's part so that makes me nervous again that that nervousness is like what I start to spin on when I wake up in the night and then can't fall back asleep. So I wouldn't characterize it as purely rational, Megan. <laughs> but it is it is a thing that um, if you are looking for how we get to Andrew's scenario where there is no season at all, which again, I don't think is likely, I think that that's the door that it walks through. It does feel like, like the owners are just very focused on for lack of a better term, winning this. Yeah. Um, as opposed to coming to an agreement. And it's something that, I, you know, me and other people have yelled at in rooms and when you think about like free agent signs, like we don't need sure. to win this. We just need to get the player, you right. know, and, and, and you don't need to, it's supposed to, you know, or or a trade. Like we don't need to win the trade. We just need to get something that works for both teams. Like we just get this done. 
Um, but it, it's, you know, we, we were already kind of, it's February 17th. I know people have thrown out dates. I've thrown out February 24th as, as where you need to be done by if you're going to get this thing started on time. I almost feel like we're past that point. Like it's, it's with where we are and what we need to do. And it's probably going to be seven days from an agreement to getting camp going. Like there's some delay here. Like what sure. is your what is your current? I know how big a fan you are of sports gambling. Let's say a casino calls you <laughs> and says, um, "Hey Meg, we need to set an over under on games in the 2022 season, and we'd like your advice." And I know you don't like to be involved in gambling, so here's forty million dollars for you to tell us <laughs> what you think the over under uh... should be. What are you saying? I guess with forty million dollars, I could potentially buy right. us in the I'm, city of Seattle. So yeah, like, I'm going to sell you. I'm, I'm selling you out here. You're getting you're getting sold out. Um, so I, I mean, I don't think we can start on time. I don't think we can start on time. Um, because I think we would have to be. I think your your date of sort of the end of this month is even if we did that, we wouldn't probably start on time. Um, because it sounds like they want six weeks for spring but um i think it's gonna be four maybe i wonder i know that you've talked about this i'm sorry i'm gonna um i'm gonna ask you a question and then maybe i don't ever have to set a date see i i i'm a podcast host too i know how this works um but here's a question to to your question um from a front office perspective like did they get to a point where they really just say like we cannot possibly get done what we have to in four weeks. Please give us six. <laughs> I don't think so. I think if you told like just to say this, the CBA was stable, right? We had we had we had labor peace, right? And someone went to the front office and said, "Hey, we're cutting spring training back to four weeks." Front offices would rejoice. Sure, but you would have done you would have done the rest of your offseason business for the most part by then. Oh yeah, no, no, so. it's, it's talking to what teams about what's going to go on. Like they are anticipating, much like we are on an editorial level, chaos. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it's going to be a nightmare. But like, I don't think they're going to give teams an option. Like it's yeah. just like the Galos games are going to be too much. Um, but like February twenty fourth gives you a week to ramp up, gives you four right. weeks to the end of the month, and then you can start on time. Um, I'm. I, I lowered my 154 to 144. Yeah, I I um, I don't say this with like any special inside insight to to um, the negotiations, but I think that the number, the date that I'm sort of managing to mentally is that we will have an agreement by uh, the end of March, um, which probably puts us on track for. At earliest, a May 1 opening day, right? Mm-hmm. I think that that's the earliest we get is probably May 1st. And then um, with some schedule compression, which I'm, still, I'm sure they'll try to jam as many games as they can into right. a month well, less season. Yeah, and I, I, I think that they will do that. I think that the way that the one of the few um, sort of um, comments from the commissioner and bits of uh, sort of tone from him that i've actually uh appreciated is that it does it does appear that the league is conscious of um the effect that a compressed spring training um could have on injuries they seem to have learned some lessons from 2020 uh in that respect and so i think they will try to you know double people up with double headers and whatnot but Mm -hmm. i 
I think that they are conscious that there is sort of a, a bound at which that becomes um, irresponsible uh, and, and puts players, particularly pitchers, at risk. So I think that we will end up with um, some doubleheaders, but also just a compressed schedule. Um, so that'll be really fun because, you know, what works really well for projections is having two out of your last three years borked by <laughs> schedules. <laughs> it just makes everybody really confident, you know, and um, feel really good. And mentally, we're going to be able to remember that stuff as we advance into middle and old age. So we won't, you know, goof up who was good and bad from this era at all as a result of that. It'll be fine. <laughs> uh, we'll get into more of the overall bummer that is baseball in a second but i want to talk about a different bummer um which is unfortunately the biggest news out of baseball this week was a trial going on um concerning the death of tyler skaggs and his um being provided uh opioids and this week uh it became a bit of a story just in the sense that other former teammates of skaggs uh testified um saying that they also were acquiring uh opioids from a team employee um, and at times, in Matt Harvey's case, uh, helping Skaggs acquire opioids. Yeah. Um, Ken Rosenthal wrote about this this morning. Um, we had this on the schedule before that. I read that. But this is the kind of the question, which is, if this was happening with the Angels, we would be um, foolish to think they were the only team, no? I, I would imagine so. Um, I, and again, I... I don't say this with with special insight, but I um, I I would imagine that in a sport where you have a schedule as long as baseballs, um, and you do have players who deal with injury, that the idea that that some of them are not using um, prescription medication to try to deal with their pain and that that does not sometimes lead to more recreational usage that is damaging would be foolish um mostly because this is like an issue that extends beyond baseball into broader american society so i don't know why we would think that right in a sport where um you are dealing with pain Pain management is part of the game that we would we would somehow be lucky enough to be exempt from from those issues um, and so, yeah, I don't know, um, y- you know, I was talking about this with someone else um, last week and and they sort of put the question to me of, is this something that is unique to the Angels? Is this a broader problem in baseball? And my answer was like, I don't, I don't have trouble believing that, you know, perhaps the Angels would have proven themselves to be particularly inept at this. Like, I, I, I it doesn't seem like that organization is always fully functional. Um, but I think that the idea that it is a problem that is unique to their clubhouse is um, is probably quite uh, naive for us to expect. So, And I want to get into Harvey a little bit because – there was some ugly reporting wrapped around it and now people yeah. are saying like he gets suspended and then um, Terry Collins went and talked about things he probably shouldn't talk about. Yeah. Um, and we're talking about like personal stuff. We're talking about mental health aspects. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I talked to, to Eric Longenhagen yesterday about the basketball player, Ben Simmons. Yeah. Um, and he explained to me that story. And it feels like, the reporting on this is not good um, yeah. in the sense that we still don't necessarily treat mental health the way it should be. Um, 
addiction can be a mental health issue. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just, you know, and I think some of it comes from the way we were raised in the sense, especially my generation, which is older than yours, which grew up yeah. with like Reagan as a president and just say no. And anyone who did drugs was a monster. Like that's how right. it was treated. Right. Um, and that was, that was the culture of it. Um, and like, what, how do we do better here? You're an editor. You're an editor in chief. <laughs> um, We're on the well, show with Meg Rowley, editor in chief of Bankers. <laughs> We're going to speak this into existence. Um, uh, how, how do we how do we do better at this as a as a as a reportage? Uh, you know, how do sure. we treat this as better as opposed to saying because it just feels like it's like oh Matt Harvey drugs monster like and it's right. just I don't think that's accurate. Right. Well, and it was it was interesting with Collins that you know clearly Matt Harvey was subpoenaed to testify. Um, the content of his testimony is news, um, but that seems to then grant permission to Collins to to share details that went far beyond what Matt Harvey testified to in open court. Um, so I think that part of it is um, from from the team's perspective, um, I would hope that the priority uh, can be trying to ensure the wellness of your players. Um, and just as we'd be naive to think that, you know, the Angels Clubhouse was the only one that had um, this sort of issue, I think that we should acknowledge that, like, self-medication addresses a whole host of ailments, some of which are not physical. Right. Um, you know, that you can be trying to self-medicate to address um, issues of mental health just as easily as, you know, having a, a – Bahi elbow. So I think that, um, you know, treating that the information around the particular circumstances of an individual player with really great care. And, you know, I'm not saying that this was like a HIPAA violation, <laughs> like I'm not wading into that discourse, but just viewing <laughs> it as as something that you have a you have a high standard of and duty of care toward. Right. Because what you want to incentivize within an organization is players feeling comfortable being able to talk about this stuff so that they can, when they are ready, um, get the help and support that they need, whether it's just um, figuring out how to how to uh, deal with and um, and treat in a productive and healthy way um, mental health issues or addiction issues, you want people to live in a culture where they can say, I need help dealing right. with this. It is, you know, it's, um, I, I can't manage it by myself anymore. Um, because I do think that as a broader culture, we have, I think we have shown some strides on that question, right? That we acknowledge that it is not a it is not a failing of the person to need help when it comes to these things. It is just a reality that we all, to varying degrees and to varying bits of severity, have to to navigate as human beings. And so we want people to be able to say, "I need help," so that they can get help and um, and be well. And and so I think that you know from the team side like you want to guard that information very carefully i think from the editorial side as as a media member you know simmons is an interesting case cuz i don't know and and some of this is my um ignorance to the specifics of his um struggle but like I, you know i think it might be reasonable to say 
that as we learn information about a player and what they're going through, that our tone and sort of posture toward them is is going to shift over time, right? That we might start to understand um, that, you know, what what seemed like flightiness was mm. actually an expression of uh, an underlying and more serious issue. And that information should should shift how we talk about and sort of interact with their behavior. I think that we also, as as media members and as fans, should probably be conscious of the fact that we don't know everything that's going on with a player, right? Like, we we might not know that that behavior that we think is um, uh, sort of lends itself to critique is actually an expression of a bigger problem. And that doesn't mean that that players are above criticism, but I think that it does, you know, sort of shape the the sort of tone with which we enter the public space to like lob our bombs. Um, and that if you are someone who is covering a team and, you know, you have a conversation like this one that the, the post had with Terry Collins, I think it's incumbent upon you to ask, what is the, what is the value of, of sharing this, right? Like what, what do we as um, folks trying to understand sport gain from broadcasting this person's problems? Like, is there real editorial value in publishing this interview? I think that sometimes, uh, and this this goes beyond just mental health considerations, but uh, and it's something I'm sympathetic to as an editor. But I think that sometimes you'll you know you get a piece, and maybe the piece isn't good. And you do all this work to make the piece better, to make it sort of clear the bar of being publishable from a uh, a readability perspective. And now, okay, so, so something I wrote, okay, That's fine. <laughs> and now the the lens through which you're evaluating that piece has shifted. The comp you're making is not to is this does this clear the bar of being sort of publishable and valuable in in a vacuum to does it clear that bar relative to where it started? And that might not be the question that you should be asking yourself, right? Like you should be asking, what what do we gain uh, by publishing this? And does it, how does it interact with the downsides of publishing it? Now, like cocaine use in the clubhouse, like that is newsworthy. Um, but I, I think that you can talk about you know, in the case of Harvey, like you could have talked about the revelations of his testimony without supplementing those revelations with, you know, very intimate details about his mental health, about his other drug use that he entrusted to someone probably with the expectation that it wouldn't become public. So it it is a thorny question because, you know, I don't want our editorial standard in the industry to be this issue is uncomfortable, and so we should shy away from it. But we need to ask really hard questions about its actual news value. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we're not clear in that bar. I think we are better as an industry. I do think that there is a sort of an empathy and a sensitivity around these questions, not only for the interview subjects themselves or the story subjects themselves, but also the the readership, right, to understand that... I mean, there's dis- been a bit of a cultural shift here. Yeah, that that how we talk about celebrities when it comes to drug use or suicidal ideation or other mental health issues has an impact on the readership too and that we have a responsibility to that readership to to ask hard questions to give them 
a heads up when we're publishing content around that stuff so that we are not um, treating this very serious subject irresponsibly. I do think we've made progress in that in that realm, but I, I think we still want to keep asking hard questions of the content and, and really ask, like, does this person who's telling me about Matt Harvey's drug use, should he be telling me that? Is it responsible yeah. for me to publish this? Like, you know, I don't know what I I don't know from a from a sort of legal disclosure perspective. Like, I don't think that Terry Collins really ran afoul of anything. But ethically, I don't think that this is information he should have shared. Right. And if, you know, if a Fangraphs writer had come to me with this interview, I would have said, like, why are we publishing this? What does this what is what value does this bring? You know? Matt Harvey might well be the subject of a suspension, and that's newsworthy. His public testimony is newsworthy, but, you know, the struggles he had in the clubhouse, I don't know that that Terry should have been telling anybody that, and I don't know that someone should have been publishing it since he did. Get those clicks. I mean, that's why right, you publish like, it, right? right? I mean, that's why you publish right, it. Right, that's why you publish it, but that's... Um, I don't. Not think a good th- reason, but... That's not a good reason in isolation regardless of the issue and it's really not a good reason when the the questions involved and the issues involved are as sensitive and personal as this so that's what i think about that so my third bullet point as i was doing the agenda yesterday was is baseball a giant bummer (laughs) and then i went through the emails to start to put together the email segment and, and an email came from Bobby that kind of introduces this macro concept better than I would have. And Bobby wrote, Major League Baseball owners are on quite a roll in the last week. Rob Manfred said last Thursday that missing any games would be disastrous and claimed the owners would make a substantial offer on Saturday, the day before the Super Bowl. He also claimed stocks are better investments than owning a Major League Baseball team, which is ludicrous and insulting to the intelligence of fans. Yeah. Saturday came. And the owner's offers to the players was essentially the same turd sandwich they've been offering. Over the next couple of days, we heard about the owner's defense of a lawsuit over them not paying minor leaguers during spring training. And a lawyer for Major League Baseball justifying this. Because minor leaguers should be considered trainees, not employees, and are essentially being paid with experience. That news was followed by a report from Jeff Passan that MLB owners asked for the ability to eliminate hundreds of minor league playing jobs in the latest labor proposal. It was a deluge of negativity from Major League Baseball owners that is reminiscent of the Trump years where it seemed like every day brought a new terrible thing being done by that administration. At a certain point, it gets to be too much to even process. Do you think it's just a coincidence that all these bad things owners are doing come out one right after the other in the last week? Or is this a planned strategy by the owners to flood the timeline with so many topics that deserve harsh scrutiny that the sheer volume of them takes focus off each individual bad thing that they're doing. Um, I will add that when we started this show, uh, Evan Drellick, Drells as we know him, um, <laughs> tweeted that Major League Baseball had arrived and they had begun talking and maybe a minute into the Tyler Skaggs d- discussion, he tweeted that the conversation has ended and Major League Baseball has left. Um, so they spoke for 15 minutes. I don't, you know, I think it, that doesn't sound good, but we don't know. Um, but with all of this going on, and then you add in the Tyler Skaggs trial um, and, and all of the other things going on, 
like is baseball just a giant bummer right now like there's is like what do we have good to say like the, i it, it's you know i know uh, first of all everyone like i we should all get off twitter i know and i don't yeah. um but at the same time like i it, you don't need to like express your outrage every second and it's just not healthy for you it's right. okay to be mad um but like you know if Jim Bowden says it's time for the player to make a substantial offer. Ignore him. You don't need to tell me how mad you are about that. Um, your life will be better and more positive. Uh, but there's like it's like this weekend college baseball starting. That's going to be fun. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's cool. But like, like what do we have good going on right now? Anything? Well, you can say nothing, and I and I'll nod my head. So, I think that. I mean, I think that the answer right now is nothing, but that's not super surprising to me. I guess I would put it this way. I think that maybe if we want to put a positive spin on um, the the current state of affairs, hopefully it is instructive to, uh, to fans and uh, to folks who cover and engage with the game that – when there isn't baseball, when the players are absent from doing the thing that we like, the game is is a pretty profound bummer, right? The thing that is exciting <laughs> is actually baseball, right? And the and the people who play it. So that's like instructive at, at the very least. That is, um, you, you know, it, it sort of illuminates, I think, an important truth about the game. Um, but no, I don't think that I don't think that you can describe anything going on right now as particularly great. It seems as if the the overarching theme on the part of owners, whether it's in the CBA negotiations, whether it's in the way that they are choosing to describe um, minor leaguers in spring training, which like we don't have to spend a ton of time on that just because it's so patently dumb. But like I'll put this to you as a person who used to work for a team. Um, when I talk to people who work for teams, like – they talk about spring training and off-season training as work. Like they they understand what the player is doing in those terms and mm. when they don't do that work, they think less of the player. <laughs> right? right? Like it it is it is part of how they um view that player and it does impact that person's trajectory within the organization, right? So like there is an expectation that you do the work and if you don't do that, like the team thinks less of you. So that seems, I don't know, like an important detail for people to, to grapple with. I think that the the proposal, which it, it does sound as if the union intends to reject as part of the CBA negotiations, that there be um, a lower cap on the number of players that a team can have in their org. Um, it, this all suggests that the thing that the owners are the most concerned with is hemming in the margins as tightly as possible. Because we know that even if you paid all of the minor leaguers an actual living wage, and not just like $15 an hour, but like a real living wage where they are not insecure in some meaningful way mm -hmm. as baseball players, even if you allowed teams to grow meaningfully the number of players they have sort of in their organizations, we're not talking about a lot of money. We're just not. Like relative to baseball and the revenue it generates, we're just not talking about that much money. It's not and a so, lot of money. And, and I've always even thought there was like an in-between, like if you didn't want to do it and, and you should want to pay players for the whole year. But like 
I've always thought like even in the off season, we have, you know, a state of the art complex in Florida or Arizona. Right. Like, if you want to come and stay here and work, we will pay for your housing and food. Right. You know, even just as a as a middle ground, even just do that right. at the very least. Well, and and I think that when you look at the the proposal to sort of cap the the minor leaguers, and I know that uh, you were you were talking about this on Twitter, the fact that we are managing down to the cheapest owner is really concerning to me. Right. It does feel like we are like like everything that they're doing is to we're kind managing of- to Cleveland. Yeah, it's just right. try to, you know, they would say level the playing field, but the playing field's already level. Like, I, if you, right, I like don't limit it at all. And it's why I said, like, if you want to, I know there are teams who feel this way. If you want to limit it down to, you know, if you want to say we only want eighty guys in our minor league system, do it. See how it sure. works out for you. But if you know, if the Dodgers or the Yankees say we want right. two fifty and we want three complex, let them do that too. See right. how it works out. You know, right. and, and spend your money however you want. Like this is it, it's, you know, if you are really a fan of free markets right let it be a free market like no right. salary cap no right. you know no salary cap spend as much as you want do it out do this however you want right and and the the real answer is that they're not ideologically aligned with the free market they're ideologically aligned with profit like that is the motivation this is not <laughs> this is not a bunch of people who have actually read like econ theory and are like i have to take a principled stand on behalf of hayek like that's not what they're doing here they just want to make as much money as possible and i think you're right like if the dodgers want to field big rosters who they actually pay and i do think that that needs to be like a a proviso that we put on all of this stuff like if they want to field a couple of complex league teams and they want to pay those guys a living wage to do it like go with god in a good wind if the guardians want to be cheapskates they should see how that works for them but we should not manage to the guardian standard that's not where we should be as an organization collectively i mean I don't think that every guy on the complex is going to be a big leaguer or an all-star or have a long and productive major league career. But I think in a moment where player dev has never been better than it is right now and where these athletes have never been better than they are right now, there is a not silly argument that you should let player dev see what it can do with some of these guys that have historically been sort of marginal and see if you can net a couple big leaguers out of it. And even if you can't, those guys are like the whetstone that you're sharpening the dudes who will be the face of your franchise on. And so they have value to player development writ large, even if they end up topping out at, you know, high A. Because the other guys on the complex who are really good have to play against somebody, <laughs> you know? And so I, I don't want to have like a Pollyanna-ish understanding that like within every every dude is the potential to be Mike Trout or even to just be like a two-win dude. That That isn't how baseball talent is distributed and we know that. But I think the idea that we know for sure who is going to be good is just not consistent with the way that like player dev people I talk to talk about this, right? No. You have to be really sure. You have to be really sure you know who is going to be good to continue to contract and trim, right? If anything, like the the sort of error bars on player development suggest you want bigger orcs, not smaller ones. Yeah, I so, think the smartest teams in baseball are teams running out two DSL teams. 
Right. Like, like the just fact. Sign all yeah. these kids. Like the kid has a, some sort of intriguing tool. Let's see what them. he can do. Yeah. Yep. Like the fact that it is the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Rays that want big organizations should tell you something about where the smart teams see, you know, if you want to put it in sort of icky value terms, see value. And they see it in casting a wide net and trying to figure out, oh, is that is that actually like a carrying tool? Right. Let's you know, give this that, player a chance. And the fact that when you can give 70 of them instead of 30, you're right. going to end up with more big leaguers. It's, you know, you're buying right. more scratch off tickets. Exactly. As long as and, we're going to keep this with an ugly value thing. Yeah. And buy like more the, scratch off tickets. And the idea of contracting the minor leagues to the level that they're at currently was, well, it affords us the, the chance to pay them all better. But now they want to make it smaller again, which I think mm-hmm. kind of puts the truth to that that lie. I do think that there are going to be orgs that say, look, if you want us to pay these guys a living wage, it means we're fielding fewer teams. And like you said, let them try. Let's see what it does for them. At some point, Cleveland is going to be sick of being third in the Central and we'll see if they're sick enough of it relative to the money they take from revenue sharing to actually do something. But, like, that's Cleveland's problem. We don't need to make that the Dodgers' problem. Right. Right, exactly. And, the, you know, we don't – there are 30 teams here. And, and, I mean, I've said this before, there are no – even Cleveland is not a small market team. No. They could spend way more money on – especially this aspect of it when you compare it to, right. what, you know, $20,000 salaries or $20 million Pe- salaries. It's, it's Peanuts. nothing. It's right. Nothing. If 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 Cleveland really believes some of the stuff that they're saying, they would this would be the place where they would want to spend money because relative to having to acquire talent on the free market, they are they are getting multiples of value relative to salary. The fact that they don't want to makes me sort of skeptical of at the ownership level the real sort of um will to win and I do think it's important for us in the baseball media to like differentiate this because like I know people who work for the Guardians who are not senior and they want to ring like those those folks want to win and so I do I do think that like it is incumbent upon us on the media side to to be precise right right now this is an ownership issue and owners pick senior front office people who are willing to do the world the way they want. So I don't mean to let, you know, GMs off the hook here. But like, um, I, I you know, hear you. I, I, there's I, variation I, there. Some, I some... probably let you let them off the hook more than you do in the sense that I, sure. I, free, I, there are a lot of front office people who are really caught in the middle right now. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like they're really not happy with the situation there. I have talked to people with a GM title and, you, and who are asking me what I think about labor. I'm like, shouldn't you be telling me this? And like, they're like, I'm in the dark. I have no idea what's going on. Right. You know, I mean, they I are, this that, is between the owners and the union. Like front office people are really yes. often trapped in the middle here. Yes. And, and especially in a moment like this, they absolutely are. And I don't mean to say like, you know, they're not sitting in on this stuff. But I mean, I do think that owners tend to, um, you know, it is it is valuable for GM candidates in a job interview to be able to say, I can make you all this money and spend this amount to do it. Right. There's value in that from a a job security and sort of Mm -hmm. getting in the door perspective. But yeah, I think there are a lot of front office people often to the very most senior levels who they want to win. And like they are constrained by budget and some of them are are more um, maybe sympathetic to those constraints than others. But like they really want, they want to win. And 
and ownership. And I'm sure they'd like more money. I'm sure. You know, right. I'm I, sure they like, would. I mean, like the Guardians yeah. GM, the owner says, "Hey, you got sixty million dollars," and and they go, oh, "Okay, you know, let's, right. let's, like, let's figure this out, guys." You know, yeah. but, but they're not happy about it. Right. For sure. For sure. So, I just i I think that we are we are managing, and not you and I, because if we were in charge, this would all look very very different. But the <laughs> the sort of ownership consensus is managing to the cheapest common denominator rather than the middle or even the high end. And the fact that as a collective, they are doing that despite the fact that they all, not all, but many of them approach spending and the game differently is, I think, concerning because it doesn't seem to be enough of a problem for the the high spenders to really try to check the guys at the bottom and right. that's you know there's there i'm sure that they don't all agree about everything but that's socialism but there isn't much <laughs> to suggest that like they are not pretty well united in this cba negotiation well, that's, that's what's weird to me like don't i, I don't understand and maybe they are i don't know like i don't understand why or you know, I know he's you know he's the new guy in town, and and if when you're the new guy in town, you're an owner, you kind of have to like keep your mouth shut in the corner. But why aren't like why isn't Steve Cohen or the Dodgers or it seems saying, hey, screw this, guys? You know, like right. what what are, you, what are we doing here? I don't. That's hey, Guardians, hey Rays, hey, that's your problem, not mine. Right. Like, why isn't that happening? Right. Why isn't it? I was you know. My my cynicism around this stuff sort of hardened in in 2020 with the draft stuff because I would imagine that like the Dodgers were not happy with a five round draft, right? The Dodgers nobody, are like nobody nobody was, but yeah, nobody was, but like they were. I'm sure they were like, oh, excuse me, <laughs> we have done years of work and we like some of these guys later. So can we not? Right? Like you know, the fact that um, the the sort of money saving instinct in that year, even with the pandemic, which obviously was like a huge compounding variable here, but like um, that was when my sort of cynicism around this stuff hardened. It's like, oh, we're gonna continue to sort of race to the bottom um, on this stuff. And you see it with the CBT thresholds too. We'll take a break on all this happiness and we'll come back and talk about the Ukraine to make you more depressed with Lincoln Mitchell. And first you'll listen to a much happier song by Model Homes. So stick around. Get that to carry out. Get that to carry out.
Welcome back to the podcast. Special guest time. Our special guest is a political analyst, pundit, writer, based in New York City and San Francisco. You could read this bike take all day because this 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 is one of those people that embarrasses you because he's done so much. He works on democracy and governance-related issues in the so former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, the Caribbean, the Middle East, Africa, and Asia. Works with businesses and NGOs globally, particularly in the former Soviet Union. He writes and speaks about U.S. politics as well. He was a faculty member at the Columbia University School of International Affairs from 2006 to 2013 and still is affiliated with the Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University. He's the author of 8,000 books, including uh, Uncertain Democracy, U.S. Foreign Policy, Georgia's Rose Revolution, The Color Revolutions, which I have a copy of. And he's also done some baseball stuff, including writing a book called Will Big League Baseball Survive? Globalization, the End of Television, Youth Sports, and the Future of Major League Baseball, uh, Baseball Goes West, How the Dodgers and Giants Shaped the Major Leagues, and a fascinating book called San Francisco Year Zero, Political Upheaval, Punk Rock, and a Third Place Baseball Team. He's been all over television. He's been all over every sort of media thing. And I'm very glad to have him here to talk to us like we're five-year-olds and explain to us what the hell's going on. It's Lincoln Mitchell. Lincoln, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. Pretty well. I have a brand new puppy, which is taking my mind off of Putin and the lockout. So that's that's good. I know how you feel. We have a brand new puppy here as well. And oh, that's great. It's a lot. Um, yes. Okay. So right now, if you turn on the news, you're going to hear Ukraine, Ukraine, Russia, massing troops, Ukraine, Ukraine, and CNN and MSNBC. And if you're still enough to watch it, Fox News is filled with talking heads who probably would have trouble pointing out Ukraine on a world map. Um, you have been very involved in this area of the world and know this area of the world very well. Why is Putin amassing troops on the border of Ukraine? And talk to the, us like we're five years old. I'm not going to talk to you like you're five, <laughs> but the, the, what you're hearing on, in those, in the media on the left and the right here is essentially two things. One, this is about Ukraine getting into NATO and Russia not and Putin not wanting Russia, uh, Putin, Ukraine to get into NATO. And two, some variation on Putin is, is crazy. Putin is Hitler. Putin is trying to reconstitute the Soviet Union. And neither of those are quite right. There's, there's more to it than that, but at the same time, it's, the, it's in that ballpark. So the first thing to understand about this NATO question is that everybody knows that Ukraine is not getting into NATO anytime soon. So it's this odd kind of kabuki uh, games brinksmanship about this, right? Because there are countries in NATO that don't want Ukraine in. And as long as that the case is the case, Ukraine's not getting into NATO. And if I know that from talking to people in NATO, then Moscow knows that and Washington certainly knows that. But the issue is that the United States in particular does not, and some of our, some, but not all of our NATO allies, does not want it to be seen that Russia has bullied us out of not pushing for Ukraine in NATO. <laughs> the, the language that people use is that we don't want to give, Russia doesn't have a veto over who gets into NATO and who doesn't. But the actual issue of Ukraine getting into NATO is something that's a decade or more down the line. So it's not, it's not the key issue. The second issue that Putin wants to reconstitute the Soviet Union, well, that's an overstatement, and it's important that it's an overstatement because it suggests some kind of not really thinking clearly, no real strategic aim, just kind of angry and grandiose. I don't think that's quite the case either. 
and, and I say this with no love lost for Vladimir Putin. I want to be clear on that. But it also is important to understand where he's coming from. And to a great extent, what this is about is Putin and Russia wanting to send a very clear message, which is that this is our part of the world. And if you, the West and the United States, continue to play games with here, with us here, there will be substantial consequences. They sent that message in Georgia in 2008. They sent that message again in Ukraine beginning in 2014 when, with their incursion into Crimea and the Donbass, where they still are, and they still are in parts of Georgia. But apparently, it's not strong enough because, in their view, the West continues to meddle throughout the former Soviet Union, continues to dabble in regime change around the former Soviet Union, and they want to send a message very clearly. And the reason it would be very clear is that if this does come to war, and I very much hope it doesn't, it will be could be very devastating for both sides. Well, both I, sides. Let, yeah, I, yeah, I, Putin's not a good dude. I get he's he's a bad guy. I get it. Like anyone who used to run the KGB is going to be a bad guy, and he's a bad guy. But isn't it a fair criticism that the U.S. has dabbled in regime change there? The word criticism is subjective. It is a, certainly a fair statement, right? I mean, it, which is which is kind of the point. And 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 what's what's also an important part of that is that. You know, because our dabbling in regime change was not ultimately successful, and I say that as somebody who was deeply involved in that project. Who was, who um, was dabbling I mean, himself. <laughs> I mean, I was on the ground in, in, in two of those countries. So, yes, right. I was. I mean, you know, I was, I mean, not to put too fine a point it, but I did help plan out the Rose Revolution, right? So I know what that was in Georgia. So I know what that, and the Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan. But in our consciousness in the West and policymakers in Washington, that's receded to the background because— it didn't really work. But for Moscow, it's very front and center. And we continue to tell ourselves, you know, at the policy level, that this was about democracy promotion and freedom and all of that. And to some extent it was. But that's not how Russia sees it. What Russia sees it is this was about you playing games in our neighborhood and that's not okay. And, you know, um, it is worth noting that the United States does not take kindly to any foreign power doing anything in the Western Hemisphere. Now, we've been on this for weeks now, and with with Biden and various State Department officials saying it's coming any minute now, um, and I don't think they've done the best job of convincing people it's coming any minute now, and at times they've had a, a, uh, a bit of a contentious relationship with the media asking for details and them saying, just trust us, um, and then you're asking us to trust a government that told us about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq before starting something, and so they're hard to be trusted. Have they done a good job kind of relaying their concerns in the sense that they keep, it, it's, at what point has it just become a bit of a, a Peter and the Wolf situation here? We may already be past that point, because if you, if every day you say war is coming tomorrow, you effectively never say that war is coming tomorrow, because it just, it just gets lost. Uh, they, I, I believe that, that they are trying to raise people's awareness of the seriousness of the crisis. That's the charitable way to put it. On the other hand, you know, remember that, that the, the lies about the weapons of mass destruction were meant to get us into a war and put troops on the ground in Iraq, which was a mistake. Biden is not going to put troops on the ground in Ukraine. He has said that. And if he allows himself to be bullied by the right wing of the Republican Party, who wants nothing more than to see Biden fail, they don't care why or how, and he does send troops onto the ground in Ukraine, he's making an enormous mistake. But I think Biden is not, is not going to do that. He has said that publicly. 
So I think what they're trying to do is to build support for why we're going to spend money doing this, why this is going to be important. I mean, it is, I think if you go ask 100 reasonably thoughtful Americans why we care about Ukraine, 85 of them won't have an answer. And the political leadership has not done a good job of, of changing that here in the United States. They've not really explained, even though there may or may not be good reasons, they've not really explained why this is important. And there's also are hawkish elements in Washington. There are hawkish elements in kind of the pro-Ukrainian activists around the United States that have, that have been warning about war between Russia and Ukraine, you know, since, since 2014, every day this is going to get expanded, this is going to get expanded. So there is kind of a think tank industry around that, and, and we're seeing the fruits of that, and not in a positive way right now. There's been what lots are, of talk. Go ahead, uh, Meg. I was just going to ask, how, how would you characterize sort of the preferences of U.S. allies who are more geographically proximate to the, to the potential conflict? What are... Well, Sorry, that you don't have to talk to me like I'm five, but you can talk to me like I'm a I'm a political theorist. So like boots on the ground, we're we're very confused by real world applications to things. So, well, it does depend. It depends a bit on what allies you're talking about. Sure. So, countries like Poland, the Baltic states, they are very hawkish on this. They would love to see the United States get further involved in this. Some of our older allies, Germany and France, you know, they have to live with Russia. They're powerful on their own, and they're not living in terror of Russia. So they've, they're, they're less, you know, that's why not, 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 not coincidentally, the, lead, the president of France, the premier of uh, the chancellor of Germany, have gone over to try to find a compromise, right, to try to find a way out of this. They, and, and whereas the fear in, let's say, Lithuania is that if this war happens in Ukraine, it could spread. If Russia is successful quickly, they could challenge, even though we're a member of NATO, they could uh, go to war here. Whereas the, 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 the fear in Germany and France, for example, is we don't want to destabilize the region. We don't sure. want a war in Ukraine that leads, no one's going to invade, Russia's not going to invade Germany or France. But if this war happens, there will be refugee crises. Right. There will be shocks to the global economy. There will be problems with, with you know, oil fuel and, and oil and all that kind of thing. And that's what they want to avoid. And they're not, and for them, this project of bringing Ukraine into NATO just isn't something they're behind. And if I might just say something here. When, when we talk about NATO and bringing a country in or not bringing a country in, we don't always process what that means. So the, the, the linchpin of NATO membership for an aspiring country is what's known as Article 5, which is a very strong mutual defense uh, article. What it says is that attack on one is an attack on all. And parenthetically, this has only been invoked once, and that was after September 11th, which was understood by NATO to be an attack on all of the NATO countries. But what a lot of Americans don't understand is that an attack on, on Tallinn is viewed by our military and our government and our treaties as an attack on Chicago. And if Ukraine gets into NATO, an attack on Poltava, uh, an attack on Kharkiv is seen as the same as an attack on Dallas or Phoenix from our perspective. And, and although I recognize, I mean, I've been to Ukraine many times, I have a lot of friends there, I recognize the fear that many in Ukraine have of Russia, not for nothing since Russia is already making war in the country. But Americans should understand that, that before we say, yes, you know, we want this 100 percent, 
And my suspicion is that the American people intuitively understand that, but the American leadership, you know, it's, it's treaties, it's relationships, it's the grand game, and they're less likely to kind of, they're less likely to see it that way. So uh, this is uh, this is my main question, and this is where I get the most confused when I when I look at this issue and read about it and things like that. And I consider myself maybe a little above the above the average here on on following this this story. So right now Russia has troops amassed at the borders all over. Basically, they've surrounded the country with 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 troops and, and military equipment. Is that's correct? Correct. Close enough. Yes. So and and. The United States continues to say they're going to invade at any minute, as well as kind of pushing a strange story about them creating a false flag to, to justify an invasion. If they're right, and there is an invasion, and the Russian troops cross the border and invade the Ukraine, this is where I get confused. Then what happens? Because well, if Biden says you're not going, he's not going to get involved militarily. Then, like, then what happens? Then what do the NATO countries and the allies and the people who are not happy about this for very good reasons. What are they actually going to do about it? Well, a few things happen. And the first thing is we need, everyone needs to recognize the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian military will fight back. We've seen that already. And that is, that is not nothing. This is not a country that's coming hat in hand to the West and saying, save us. This is a country that says we've been fighting and we will continue to fight and we would appreciate some help, but we're going to fight anyway. What that means Let's put the NATO countries aside and what that means for Russia. What that means for Russia is that they will take casualties. They will, they, will, they, will com- they will kill Ukrainians, but they will also take casualties. Maybe a lot on both sides. I hope not, but we have to recognize that could happen. What that means is that no matter how long they stay in Ukraine, there will be Ukrainian military, there will be Ukrainian uh, undergrounds, Ukrainian guerrilla forces that will take shots at Russians that will fight back. This is not going to be easy for Moscow. And that's why I can't imagine why Putin wants this war. You know, as late as the 1950s, the 1950s, Ukrainian nationalists who, from where I sit as, you know, a Jew whose family fled Ukraine, were no friends of mine, um, of my, my family's, but they were still resisting the Soviet Union as late as the 1950s. The Ukrainians aren't going to go for that. They're, they're not gonna, this isn't going to sit well with them. We are unlikely to send troops but we will send weapons. We will send materials. There will be pressure to send more weapons and more materials. And once you start sending weapons, you're in. It's hard to get, you know, you're, you're, you're seen as not just a bystander, but you're part of the conflict. Mm-hmm. And w- another point is that if you send weapons, and stop me when, when this word rings a bell, you m- sometimes have to send trainers, not, you know, in the American mm-hmm. sense of the word, not the British sense. And for those of you who know your Vietnam history, yeah. right? <laughs> So, so let's say that you send a, a complicated weapon that is going to shoot a missile. I'm not a weapons guy, but let's just go with me for a second. And then you send a mid to senior level, you know, handful of American military personnel to help the Ukrainians learn to use this, which is what you would normally do. And, and they go and, you know, they're trying to do what they've been asked to do. And they're working hard and they're working with their Ukrainian allies and, and doing what they need to do for, for the mission. And then... A Russian missile comes in. And I, I don't want this to happen, but we have to recognize this, this happens in this world. A Russian missile comes in and blows up this, this facility from which they're working and kills two of these American trainers. Now what do you do with the United States of America? Mm-hmm. The Russian military has just killed two of our soldiers. That's not something that we can just shrug our shoulders at. 
this can get bigger. One of the things I always tell my students, uh, I teach grad students and undergrads, is that when you hear in the media, you will always hear a hawk saying, this is Munich, this is Munich. And when that happens, you have a moral obligation, a moral obligation to say to yourself, maybe this is Sarajevo. And that's what concerns me here. A network of relationships, of wanting, of, of being worried about appearance, of saving face, and suddenly you have an even bigger conflict. And that is a real possibility. That's the what's next that should really terrify us. Uh, can you talk a little bit about just kind of the Ukrainian political and cultural climate? I know this is probably worthy of an eight-hour answer, but like, sure. is there, um, like, are they, like, is this, are 90% of the people hating Russia? Is is there a small enclave of people saying, please come, Mother Russia, save us? Like, like what is the, 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 the what's the vibe, if well, you will, there? I'll, I'll try to make two major points here. One is that Ukraine is to Russia what Canada is to the United States. <laughs> okay. But more so. And the, and the reason I say that is that you or me as someone who are not from that part of the world, who, you know, let's say, you know, you when you go to Kiev, for example, you know, a lot of things that one would associate with Russia are actually Ukrainian. For example, uh, those onion-shaped, those onion-domed churches that are very famous. They start in Ukraine. Borscht, which I, I was, my, like I mentioned, my family was from uh, Ukraine. And for years when I was growing up, my grandfather, who was American, and my grandma, grandparents would tell me that we fled anti-Semitism and poverty, but I think we may have fled the cuisine as well. But, <laughs> but, but borscht, martrushka dolls, a lot of the Russian language originates in Ukraine. You know, so, so I've had Russian speakers say to me that when they go to Ukraine, I have a colleague who's very, almost native in English, and, and she's Georgian, but very strong in Russian and Ukrainian as well, languages. And she says, when I go there, it'd be like you going somewhere and speaking Old English, right? Mm -hmm. So, so the, the cultural context is very, very close. When the, when, the, when the Soviet Union collapsed and Ukraine became an independent state from starting in 1991 until 2014, until, the, until 2013, it would be fair to describe Ukraine as being divided. Very pro-Russian in the east and very western-oriented west of Kiev, with Kiev kind of in the middle, kind of torn both ways. And most of the elections... During that time, going back to the, the, the one that led to the Rose Revolution, or, excuse me, the Orange Revolution in 2004, the victory by uh, Viktor Yanukovych, who kind of restored the pro-Russia regime in 2010, as well as before that, pitted a pro-Russia candidate whose support was in the East versus a pro-West candidate whose support came from the Western part of the country. In 2014, when Russia invaded Crimea and the Donbass, the Donbass is kind of in the northeastern part of the country. Crimea is a... Uh, I guess an isthmus that, that projects out from the southern southeastern part of the country. I've been there, but not, not since the Russians got there. I mean, I've been to the Donbass region many times. In, the, in those parts of the country, you know, people had been open to a stronger relationship with Russia. The, what happened, though, because of Russia did this, because Russia made war on Ukraine, it really changed Ukrainian opinion to be much more solidly anti-Russia which is the exact reaction that Russia didn't want. So that today he is dealing with a Ukraine that is much more pro-West because of the policies, not that Washington pursued, that Moscow pursued. 
Oddly enough, and we as Americans should know this, when you invade an occupied part of a country, it doesn't warm the rest of the country to you. Is he self-aware around that point? Is he cognizant of this being um, the changing sentiment being the result of his own action versus um, whatever um, sort of influence I mean, the West might be trying to exert? You know, I, I don't have a strong enough sense of what... I mean, it's very hard for me to get inside of Vladimir Putin's head, and for that, and for that I'm grateful. But, but what, I, what, what, what I see is that because he's losing the public support in Ukraine, Mm-hmm. That that makes it more more important for him to do something like broaden the war, if you will. And the reason for that is that when we get back to the very beginning of the conversation, Vladimir Putin's goal is, in a very meaningful way, is to render the Ukraine, is to break Ukraine, is to make the state unable to function, is to make it uh, unable to, to be a cohesive, unified country. Because if it does that, it does inevitably move westward. So that is why he is willing to take a hit to accomplish this. Does he blame himself for that? I don't know that Putin's the kind of guy who blames himself for much. So I'm, I'm going to ask you the, the ugly question because I got to, but the United States is saying every day that they're going to invade any second now. Are they going to? Um, in 1978... I made a bet with a cousin of mine from New England that the Yankees would catch up with the Red Sox. And I made that around July 4th. Um, that was one of my smarter bets and, and, and you know, predictions. And, and about 10 days before the election in 2016, I was on a global television network. And I looked in the camera and said, this election is over. Hillary Clinton will be the next president of the United States. So, you know, I'm not always right. Uh, I did... I did loudly predict the Giants would beat the Tigers in the 2012 World Series, but that was just, you know, <laughs> loyalty. Um, and they, I think they did, actually. But what, what I remain convinced of is that it is so clearly not in Russia's interest to do this that they are still looking for a way out. But the way out cannot be that Putin and Biden looked in each other's eyes and Putin blinked first. He can't take that back to the Russian people or to himself. Right. And so this is one of those situations where you could get into war that no one wants to. And Russia loses, Ukraine loses, the United States loses, and as usual in the 21st century, China wins. So you said that, like, if, if they're not willing, you know, or, or Putin's not willing to do that, Putin's not going to, like, there's, there's too much pride here. He's just not going to back down on a diplomacy level. He's not going to say, you guys are right, I'm not going to do this then what is the path to him not doing this? Well, the path to him, I think, has to take two, two dimensions. One is you need a broker that's not the United States. So that's why Emmanuel Macron and, and Chancellor Scholz, that, that's why this was, gave me a little bit of hope. A, a broker, so, so, so you don't make the deal, you don't have to, it's not Biden that made you do this. And the second is, you know, in, 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 I'm not a particularly savvy business person, but I do understand if you can ever sell something you don't have, that's good, Right. To give something away, you've already lost, right? So to some extent, a, a statement of, from Ukraine to give up their NATO aspirations would be very valuable. Would, that's, that's kind of the way out because then it's not the U.S. saying we're not going to pressure, we're not going to stop pressuring Ukraine. We're not going to stop. We're not, we're, if NATO, the U.S. position has to remain. If, if, if Ukraine wants to be in NATO, we'll support them because otherwise we're seen as being bullied by, by Putin and the United States can't have that. But if Ukraine says, look, on balance, we're going to put this aside, that gives Putin a way out. Remember that 
in Ukraine's window for NATO is not going to be open for the decade anyway. We don't know how long Vladimir Putin's going to be going to, going to be around, right? There's there's an old story which is from this part of the world that I will that I will tell, and I feel bad about this because I have a new puppy. But um, there was a pogrom, and and they came in and they were beating this old Jewish man within an inch of his life. This is in you know the 1890s or something, and he's pleading for for to them to stop. And finally, he says, "Listen, if you stop beating me, I'll teach the czar's dog to speak Yiddish." in one year. So, so they're kind of shocked, and they say, okay, okay, and they leave, which they say, well, coming back in a year. So they walk out, and his wife, who's you know, also being beaten and is terrified, says, um, why did you do that? How are you going to possibly teach the czar's dog to speak Yiddish? And the old man says, listen, in a year, the dog might die, the czar might die. So, you know, put, kick this down the road a little bit, maybe the, part of the way out of this. It's to just kind of just keep stretching it out and, and wait for it to go away. Yeah, and so, so if Ukraine says, okay, we're going to give up our NATO aspirations, you know, 10 years from now, Putin's dead or, or out of the picture, they can revive him again. They're not getting in anyway. They're not on NATO's doorstep. Regardless of what Putin wants his people to believe, we all know that they're not on NATO's doorstep, and he all knows that. So there's a bargaining there, right? We're asked to, the West, Ukraine's being asked to give away something they don't have. So why not? But then it becomes right. this principle. Right. Russia doesn't, as they say, doesn't get a veto over who's in NATO. And that's, that's, that's legit. But in this case, that's the principle that we might, tens of thousands of people are going to die. Right. I, I don't think that's a great idea. And it's not as if the existing members of NATO are going to hold the Ukraine to that relinquishment 10 years from now if they are in a position to be on the doorstep, right? And we're going to look back right. and be like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> and, and they already don't have the support anyway. So it's not, it's not, they don't, it's, you need to be unanimous to get in. They don't have it. They're not right. getting in. So, and, and it's not, you know, and, but, but the question is, and I know I'm kind of beginning to talk in circles, but the question here is, <laughs> is that enough for Putin? Because what he wants is to really break Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that'll do it. Well, Vic, I want to thank you for coming on and educating our listeners. And now when that stuff comes up, you can stand a little bit smarter, I hope. Uh, if you want to follow Lincoln on Twitter, you can do so. He is at Lincoln Mitchell, and he tweets about this stuff a lot. And Lincoln, thanks for coming on. Oh, it was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me.
Lord, money and misery, values of vice. Open facility, money and misery, money and misery. Values of vice, open facility. Welcome back to the show. Thanks to Lincoln Mitchell for coming on and educating us on the Ukraine. He's a strange guy. He, he knows that area and he knows baseball. We should talk baseball with him more. He's written books about the subject. But, you know, Ukraine felt more pressing. <laughs> uh, you've been listening to tracks from Model Home, previous guest of the podcast. Model Home, very experimental and strange and wonderful hip-hop from Washington, D.C. They're on Don Giovanni Records. And thanks to them for, for bringing good music to the show at a time where the show needs something good. It's time for emails. Are you ready for emails? Yeah, let's do it. Send your emails. They go to chinmusic at fangraphs.com. We've already read a couple of them. we got a couple more to go through. First email comes from Russell. And Russell says, can you shed some light on what goes on behind the scenes when a player is selected in the Rule 5 draft and immediately traded to another team? I'm assuming the team trading for the player does that because they fear some other team will nab him before their turn rolls around. But how open are the trade discussions? In 2018, the White Sox drafted Jordan Romano at number three and traded him to the Rangers at number seven. Did the Rangers call the White Sox and say, hey, we want Romano. Would you draft him for us? We'll send you some vintage Taj Mahal vinyl or a bag of balls. Are they more coy to that, fishing around to see if the Sox themselves have interest in the player? How do they do that? 
Or is it entirely reactive, like, shit, you guys drafted Romano and we want him. What will it take to get him for you? Russell, you've come to the right place. Uh, <laughs> as someone who ran the Rule 5 draft for the Astros for years, um, it's all very upfront. When the, uh, I guarantee you in 2018, when the White Sox drafted Jordan Romano, they knew exactly what they were doing, that he was going to get traded to the Rangers immediately. Um, the deal was done before the pick was made. Uh, it's it's done a lot like like a lot of things in this world. It, it's all happening beforehand, and then you're just seeing the results. Um, in 2000, I mean, I guess here 13, uh, the Astros had the first pick in the draft, and they didn't really have anyone that we really wanted, um, and made a trade actually to the Padres for Anthony Bass, the reliever. Um, mm-hmm. It was for a player to be named later, but it was like, hey, we'll give you Anthony Bass if you take Patrick Schuster for us and the, with the first pick and get deal to us. So, like, I went to the microphone and said the Houston Astros select Patrick Schuster, knowing that he was immediately going to get traded to the Padres. Didn't even want Patrick Schuster. Didn't even you know, was not on our list of Rule Five picks even. Um, and so, like, not the first time did that. Um, there are favors all over the place. It is, and you know, in general, if you see. Like, hey, we took this player and they get traded immediately. Usually it's money and they're giving you like literally just a few thousand more than how much it costs to make a Rule 5 pick. Um, and it's just you're just selling the pick. It's just pure selling the pick. Um, it's it's not a big deal. It's all nothing. None of it happens after. It's all happening beforehand. And you know exactly who you're taking for someone and why. Um, I once took a guy in the minor league Rule 5 as a favor to a Mexican team because this player wanted to get out of minor league baseball and go back to Mexico. Oh, sure. And so we drafted the player and released him. And then he went and played and played in Mexico. Did um, you ever trade someone for vintage Taj Mahal vinyl? I did not. It's I, I, I don't think major league baseball would approve such a deal. I, I would hope not. Although I do applaud um, Russell's musical instincts. So. Indeed. Um, but yeah, they're pure money deals. Most, most of the time, the bass thing's a little bit of an outlier, but more often than not, it's like, Hey, you know, it's 25 grand. I think it's more now to make a pick. Like we'll give you 35 if you take this guy and you go, okay. Cause we're not taking, are, they, are you taking anybody? Like, I don't think so. Can you take someone for us? Here's a check. And then you're done. Um, even though they don't give you a check, it's all like a weird wire transfer thing that I don't understand. Cause I never was yeah. involved in that part, but like there's money gets wired from one team to another all the time in these kind of situations. So it's very simple, but it all happens beforehand. None of it's after the case. Um, the one pick that I remember making that was weird was um, 17 or 18 took Anthony Ghost with the, with a, with a Rule 5 pick mm-hmm. right after he had signed a minor league contract with the Rangers, like days after. And like so he had super interesting to us and then would have liked him to be an Astro and, and just took him with the Rule 5 because he was eligible because he was signed a minor league contract, was put on the AAA roster. Um and so took him, and then I, I'll always remember he, like, it was his, I mean, Anthony Ghost, is, he had a really good year last year. His stuff's insane you know, on a pitch data level. Like, it's upper 90s with super hop and an incredible spin on a breaking ball and, like, big command trouble. But, like, he, he showed up to spring training, like, did some bullpens, and, like, the pitch data was crazy, and Strom was like, I can't, this guy's stuff's unbelievable. And first or second spring training got, game came in, went like walk 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 left and after the game i went downstairs and aj just looked at me and said nope and i said okay (laughs) i get it i know what that means when you say that um and let him go back um 
Next email comes from Sean. Sean says, long-time listener, first-time caller. Your mention of tacos at a game in Mexico City made me think of the elevation there. If balls fly out of Coors Field, what is hitting like at 7,200 feet? Yeah. Is it just a super dinger fest? It reminds me of something else I've thought about before, which is what Mexican or Latin American location would be the most likely candidate for MLB expansion. I feel like there would be great symmetry there with one team and our neighbors to the north and one to the south. I feel like Mexico City would be the likely candidate, but with the elevation, is it even feasible? Logistics are a whole other thing to consider. Anyway, love your podcast and hope you and your esteemed co-host are thriving. We are thriving. Um, let's start with the elevation. I yeah, I've I've been to baseball games in Mexico City and it's absolutely bonkers. Right. Um, like that's the thing. Like, think about Coors Field. Mexico City is literally fifty percent higher in terms of elevation than Denver. So it is, and it is fifty percent crazier. It is just like if you touch the baseball, it is flying. Um, uh, the Astros signed uh, a couple players out of the Mexico City, and like one was a, a little outfielder who I thought had fourth outfielder potential, didn't work out, but he hit like twenty five to thirty every year for Mexico City, and I put oh, wow. thirty and I put forty power on him, forty raw, yeah, uh, and that's what he had, yeah. and you know, and, and it's absolutely nuts. Like games were. They were all, you know, if you look at like the team stats there, it's like somewhere around 16 runs a game on average. Like it's an app. They, they just got a new stadium, which helped things a little bit, but it's, yeah, it's unbelievable. It's as bad as you think. Um, as far as like location, like Mexico City's not a good one just because it's in the south or more yeah. of the central, central part of the country, but like soccer is still king there. Um, baseball is huge in Mexico in the northern part of the country. And the problem is, is the northern part of the country is also one that has all of the drug trade problems. Yeah. So if there was, if Mexico was a more stable country in terms of cartels and stuff like that, not being around, Monterey would actually be the place that they'd like to be. In sure. terms, and, it, and Monterey could, has the population. Monterey is like four and a half million people. Like it has the population to support Major League Baseball and as well as the love of baseball. It would work great. Um, it's also just over the border it's not it wouldn't be a crazy trip for anybody uh, in terms of flying also it's just not feasible um just in terms of violence and stability yeah um like pre-hurricane like there was like maybe they need a new stadium like they play those games in puerto rico but like that's not a stadium that could support a major league team for 81 games um right it's like you know it would make a ton of sense to have a team in the DR um, just from an interest perspective, but it's like, it is a, a major league ballpark. I mean, they have, they have existing ballparks there, obviously for, They're not for Lido. Club. Yeah. Right. But and... in terms of getting them to major league standard, um, at least from a capacity perspective, I don't know what the, what's the biggest capacity ballpark in the DR. Do you know? Uh, it's, it's Kiskea, which is in San Domingo, which is um, where it's great. It's where, the two biggest teams both have that as their home stadium. Right. So Liso, Lise and Escajito both play in that stadium. Um, and so imagine if like the Yankees and Red Sox shared a stadium. Yeah. And when they played each other. Um, it is also, you know, obviously nowhere close to major league standards, but also I'm going to guess 10 to 12,000. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's, a, a triple a, it's a triple-A ballpark. I'm actually right. I'm going to Wikipedia this thing right now. <laughs> 14,469. 
So it would be um, like if Toronto permanently relocated to Buffalo. Yes, exactly. And so it's it's that kind of it's it's that kind of thing. But it's it's you know it's right in the middle of the city. And it's a perfect location for that kind of thing. Um, and so I mean that would that would work. I think San Diego could support a big league team. It's just it's there's a strange cultural aspect to it where right. Um, like if you go to the Dominican, you will see lots of. Dodgers and Yankees and Red Sox hats and and as well as whatever team has big Dominican stars at the time, a lot of Blue Jays of late. Yeah, um, sure. But you will see just as many, if, if not more, like Lise Escojito hats. Right. They right? have an existing baseball, baseball culture. culture. Right. right. And, and, you know, I think if you, even the average baseball fan in the Dominican would have an easier time telling you the last 10 Lee Dome title winners. Before sure. Sure. Last 10 World Series winners, you know? And so I don't... It would be a strange thing to try culturally. Um, well, and I but think I think, there's... That, I think it would work just because the passion for the game there is just such insanity. Yeah. I do think that it is, you know, if if MLB wanted to do something like that, I would hope that it would also come with an understanding that, like, this is a, you know, this is a country that has given the game so many players who are so important to our understanding of history and you know who are such luminaries and they're coming from a place where i just hope it would come with like a sense of obligation to invest in the dr as a place rather than as just a you know a hotbed for talent right if you were to put a a major league team there i would hope that mlb would look around and say we have some obligations to this place that extend beyond just baseball and i don't know how keen mlb is to take on social obligation (laughs) it's a weird thing um in a lot of ways uh the teams themselves have taken that on in some ways and 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 I'm not saying it's it's 100% like pure, right? There, there, there's you know there's a return in the investment calculation somewhere in here. Um, but when you look at like you know the the complexes that teams are building, you know especially the newer ones, and 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 um, you know I've I've seen these complexes and and the newer ones are really damn nice. But the the thing that always kind of strikes me, and it's a good thing, is just like and here's the sc- like we built a school. Right. You know, there's where the school is, um, you know, for our players and teams invest more and more into that kind of stuff in the Dominican. Um, and, you know, but again, like they're doing it for there's a reason like it's it's worth something to them on a baseball level. That's still a business uh, and, and they always treat it that way. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a good point. I mean, just see what they do um, if they did that. I don't think they're going to do that. I think you know, obviously the next expansion is probably going to be stateside. But, yeah, it's something to think about. Yeah. Have you ever been down there? I have not. Okay. I would like to. It's something else. Um, yeah. I, that's I what, love it. That's what I've heard. I need to renew my passport. I think I got, I think mine runs out like this year. So I, I, yeah, I, need, I need to, to renew well. my passport. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, homebound for now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that international travel we have going on right now. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> That's it for the email. Send your emails to us. Shitmusic at Pangraphs.com. And if you're interested in being a listener of the week, you live an interesting life, let us know. We will have you on the show. Meg, it's time to catch up with you. Mm. Life's a bummer. We've talked about this. Yeah. When you think about, like, we both agree 
within two weeks of each other, probably, of, of how, you know, when this thing might come to an end, right? Mm-hmm. When this thing comes to an end, there are still hundreds of free agents yeah. out there. And there's going to be uh, a, a compressed spring training and a incredibly compressed and chaotic transaction period as teams take care of the second half of their offseason while also starting camp at the same time. Mm-hmm. How much sleep are you using over this when thinking about this editorial speaking as the editor-in-chief of Fancrafts? <laughs> Well, here I have to take exception with a prior episode of yours, Kevin. Because you told Andy that we don't do any pre-writing, and you know that to not be true. Andy's out here thinking I'm some rube. Doesn't know how to run a publication. I think it, I think you sent the the list out of pre-writes like six, six hours after we talked about this. So, well, and Maybe I had you heard it before it. I had I had broached the subject. We had people Certainly. pre-assigned on several of the big free agents. We just, you know, had a lockout then after that. But so I, I I'm wanna... issuing both a retraction and an apology. <laughs> um, I feel preemptively tired. Um, that's one emotion <laughs> that I'm feeling. Um, I think that it's uh, it'll just be really nice to have like a a normal year, man. You know, I I have had one as the managing editor of Fangraphs, and it was my first one. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. You know, like um, I I feel much uh, more sure-footed now than I did in in 2019. Um, so I I do worry about how much work we're gonna have to do between. Um, the resolution of a deal and opening day, and like, look, that's a that's a good problem to have in a lot of ways one it means we're going to have baseball um so that's good and i baseball content right and and people will um i think be much more engaged with the sport once we have uh, an opening day to manage toward uh, and and all the activity that you talked about is is going to be good i mean i think our experience in the last like 18 months has been sort of a steady recovery of traffic um, and when there is news, people want to read about it at Fangraphs, and that's very mm. gratifying, and we're really appreciative of people continuing to visit the site and support the site and buy memberships and what have you, but um, it would be nice to be in a, a state of, of greater normalcy um, and to have the focus of our coverage and the game be the game itself. And I don't say that like we should skirt important issues. Um, we have to engage with this stuff. It is just as much baseball as as on-field baseball. Um, but it is decidedly less fun. And I think that um, I've, I've talked about this with various people, so forgive me if I've said this on Chin Music before, but it's just um, it's a real shame that we find ourselves in the moment we do because – like the sports just never been better in terms of the, the the quality and talent of the people playing it than it is right now this minute. You mm. know, um, we we live in an era that we're quite fortunate to live through in terms of the sort of caliber of player that we're getting to witness and what they're able to do. And uh, I I don't think that we can ever uh, just stick to sports because that suggests a, a false dichotomy between 
um, the action on the field and all of the social and economic factors that dictate who makes it to the field and what the rules are when they do and, um, you know, how how long they're able to stay there if they behave badly, for instance. Um, but I do have some sympathy for the people who are are worn out by it because I, I'd like nothing... I'd like nothing more than just to be able to talk ball, you know. And when we can't. When did you? When did you become the editor in chief of Fangraphs? <laughs> um, I was promoted to managing editor in November of 2018. So Carson, so you've left. had one normal season. I've had one normal season. Okay. And and again, it was my first year on the job, and so I was really finding my way. Um, I I. So you really haven't had a normal season then. No, no, I haven't. I, I remember being so excited um, before the pandemic hit going into uh, the sort of the we do all this planning behind the scenes. This will not be surprising to your listeners, but we do all this planning behind the scenes about the upcoming season and, and what we're going to do in the lead up to opening day. And are there big new features, both in terms of the, the, the way the site actually functions and like editorial that we want to do and. I remember in January of 2020 being so excited because I was like, I know how to do this now. Like mm. I, and now because, you know, I know how to do the the nuts and bolts and mechanics of the job, I feel like I can really sort of advance the site, you know, um, and, and not like it, Fangraphs was dealing from such a deficit before, but like I felt like, okay, I get to really put my mark on things now and I have ideas about what I want us to do and I think that I can you know b- contribute strategically and kind of advance the ball uh to mix my sports metaphors and um and then the pandemic hit and we were just in survival mode and have been in a lot of ways in like a version of survival mode ever since then so mm-hmm. I'd like to I I look forward to a year where we are um we're able to plan you know and react uh when we need to but not always be reacting right that we get to also um sort of dictate the the path that the site takes and um you know i don't want the players to accept a crummy deal just to facilitate that for me like that trade-off <laughs> isn't worth it um so i i you know don't want anyone to come away from this thinking that that's kind of my my perspective on it but I, I look forward to being in a position where we can really, um, you know, focus on sort of the site unfolding with a bit more foresight. And and just personally, uh, this is what I said to my mom the other day when we were talking. Like, I feel like an accountant who doesn't know when tax season is. <laughs> you know, like I'm in, I'm just stuck in terms of being able to plan like, when my mom can come visit, (laughs) you know, and when, and when I can, like, I've gotten invitations from friends to do things, uh, that would require travel between March and May. And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) Right. Cause things are going to get wacky, but you don't know when that's going to start. Right. And, you know, I, I don't mean to suggest that like this job doesn't rock, like this job rocks. And it comes with periods of time when I know that I'm just going to work every day for a month. I'm going to, not all day every day necessarily, but like every day for 30 days, I'm going to have to do work. 
And I don't know when those months are. I know when October is, and presumably that is hopefully going to still be one of those months, question mark. Um, but like, you know, am I going to be in a spot where it's April and then we're going to turn around and July is going to be like July was last year where we have the draft and the deadline in the same month? I imagine so. I can't imagine we're going back to a June draft, especially with these delays, but maybe, you know, like, I don't know for sure. So just personally, as, as someone who you'll be shocked to learn, Kevin, likes to have a plan, I'm just in limbo, you know? So it's not the biggest problem that is facing us as a result of these CBA negotiations and like the ecosystem that operates around baseball is very far from the minds of the folks negotiating the CBA. The disruption sure. to, to that ecosystem is like, is not what they are at the table for. And I, I get that, but there are a lot of people whose lives are disrupted by the owners refusing to budge on six four percent of league revenues, right? Mm. And I, you know, I wish that that bothered them more. It clearly doesn't, but I wish it did because, like, you know, my mom wants to come visit Rob, <laughs> <laughs> and she can't. I mean, she could, but if I have to work while she's here, oh, good, you know, the fights. That's not a good fight. So she she doesn't understand this. She does. She does. Um, but, you know, when you have to get on a plane and you're hanging out for... What's she thinking her... about coming? Well, she wanted to come this month and then other stuff came up. And, and Well, then other stuff came yeah. up. But she might come down in March. But yeah, it's like, you know, if you're, if you're getting on a plane and you're only going to be in town for three days and then your daughter has to work those three days, like, that's mm-hmm. not a good trip. So, no. you know. Let my mom come to Arizona, Rob. (laughs) Are you, like, I know we're kind of busy now because we got Prospect Week ramping up. Yeah. Are you trying to make any attempt to kind of manage your chill before the storm, if you will? Some, yeah. It's been, it's been, um, it's been fine. I mean, like, there have been... Um, you know, we're still busy with some stuff. Like we got, you mentioned prospect week. We have lists still. Um, and so it's not as if there's nothing to do. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to controlled chaos as opposed to the upcoming. Sure. Exactly. And so I am trying to take advantage of the, the breaks, uh, within that control chaos when, when I can, and that has been, uh, useful, um, you know, it's it's hard to I am not a good personally at always keeping um, my own sort of stress and anxiety about the coming chaos out of those moments. Um, and so that's like, you know, just a personal failing that I have to work through. <laughs> but <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, I, I'm I'm doing my best to sort of navigate that stuff and to not, you know, like to not let Twitter get me down and the constant Twitterness of Twitter. 
Um, or like, you know, it was really nice in this most recent round of proposals that like our, our names just were not, uh, talked about it at all. You know, like Fangrass yeah. just was kept out of it. That was, that was nice. That's stressful. And now it seems to be stress that is receding. So, um, I'm, I'm trying my best, you know, I'm trying to like, uh, read books and, and watch some TV and, uh, ride my bike and, and enjoy, you know, this is beautiful time of year in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm trying and again like people could be sitting there and listening to this going like meg we're playing the world's tiniest violin for you like oh my gosh your, your job is stressful whose isn't but you know it would be it, it would be nice if we had um you know it'll be nice when we have a, a more normal year because these things do compound and it's been weird for a while now right <laughs> so well, speak. You said you're watching TV, and you said you have a, a TV show to talk about in your moment. Yeah. Culture. So, what is this television show? Have you been watching The Gilded Age on HBO? Yes, I have. Really? Yeah. No, no one is talking about this show. Are we so, like the four, two of the four people who are watching it? It's it's two. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it was three of us because so um yeah my my wife's a big fan of that time uh, in history, and so we watch a lot of period pieces. Um, and then, you know, hey, it's a new show from the Downton Abbey people. We're certainly going to watch it, and, and we yeah. are watching it. I um, I've been enjoying it very much. Um, I I read a review of the Gilded Age uh, that that Allison Herman over at the Ringer wrote that I thought did did nail like one of the things that I wish was present in it. Um, have you seen uh, Gosford Park? Which which oh, it's Julian- great. So, so it's the same guy, you know, that Downton Abbey, Gilded Age, all, all Julian Fellows. And in, in Glassford Park, um, I thought Allison made a good point. Like he was, he was, uh, much more sort of, um, rough on, on the ruling class in that, right? Like they, they are not presented as, as good people and they are Mm -hmm. often, allowed to be as ridiculous as like being idly wealthy can i think sometimes make people and so i do wish that there was a bit more acid with the sweet in gilded age but um it's beautiful like as a show it is just stunning um and it is it is quite engaging and the the drama in it um managing to be both um interpersonal and uh, more broadly political i think is a really fun balance fun is maybe the wrong word but like compelling balance yeah um i never remember when it is on because <laughs> yeah, no I mean, one's talking about it we just what we watch it on hbo max and i yeah think new episodes on monday or tuesday i can't even tell you right. monday or tuesday is when we watch it yeah um so so i've but i've been enjoying it i don't really um think that it's like important tv but that might be part of why i'm enjoying it is that it's not it hasn't been like freighted with all of this Mm -mm. meaning you know like there's some social commentary in it some of it hit yeah yeah, some of it hits i think a little more profoundly than at other times um but like anytime you get to spend like an hour with christine baranski like you're you're in for a good time she's very um, good as well she's very good as the the staunch, let's call it the staunch character. Yes. Um, set in her ways. Yes. So if you liked Downton Abbey, the odds are very good that you will enjoy this. Uh, if you like Downton a... Abbey and you hate the accents, this is perfect for you. 
Sure, yeah. If you wish that Downton Abbey had just been Cora all the way down, like, right. here they're is in, a show in, for you. Late, they're in late 19th century New York, for those who don't right. know. And so, yeah. Um, and it's, it's, and there is like this, the nice story of like the, the old school elites and, and the new money elites mm-hmm. um, battling for elite them, if you will. Yes. And, and um, yeah, there was a, there was a recent story, like a plot line of the super rich guy kind of taking on the political world. Um, and being absolutely ruthless about it. And even though he's a bad person, I was still rooting for him. I thought it was funny yeah. what he was doing. So, um, But I actually would like to see a little more, um, I don't know, Godsford Park or Upstairs Downstairs focusing yes. on, on the service yes. staff, if you will, um, which was such a nice part of Downton Abbey. I don't know if there's enough of that. Right. But it's yeah. good. Like, yeah, we go, yeah, what do we do? Oh, there's a new Gold Age. We'll watch that. Yes. Sure. Yes. Gold so- HBO Max. Yeah. I don't know if it's on normal HBO or not, but I don't know if anyone has cable anymore anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I imagine um, if you're putting that much money into production value, I would expect that it is on all of the various HBO platforms would be my would be my guess. But um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a good time. It goes down easy. I'm going to talk about a band that has excited me of late. Tell me. And. I wish I could play their music, but I can't because I, you know, writes and stuff. Sure. Um, it's a band, it's a British band called Dry Cleaning. Um, and they have an album out uh, right now. It's, it's, I guess it's their semi-debut album. Um, but Dry Cleaning is a British band. I would call it kind of post-punk, if you will. Uh, but it's also very artsy and interesting. So they were started as most great bands are when two people met in art school. Um, and this guy started a band and he always wanted this woman to front the band. And she said, I have no interest in fronting a band. I'm not a musician. I don't want to do this. Uh, and he said, well, just come anyway and, and come record with us. She said, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to front this band. Uh, I don't even sing. And he said, that's fine. Just talk. Um, and, and they tried it. And she just kind of like went in with like, notes from old drawings stuff she'd written on her phone diaries things she saw in advertisements she thought were funny she's just talking over this kind of post-punk guitar heavy melodic soundtrack it has a bit of a wire sound to it at times like an old school guitar focused sound and and it's just this one yammering over it it's great it's great and weird and funny and smart and i think they're great and they're called dry cleaning and cool. So go look them up on YouTube or Spotify or whatever. Dry cleaning. I think we're done here, Meg. I think we are. We Thanks for having on, me. Oh. We finished on positive things. You know, things we yeah. like that are good in this world. Yeah, I'm always I'm always keen to check out a, a new band, if only because it will allow me to um, not share some of my other more horrifying music tastes with you. So this is yeah, a win, so I've, win-win for me. I have been only only mildly exposed to your musical taste and it's um and i'm glad it's it's only that (laughs) (laughs) but but thanks for wasting your thursday with me well thanks for having me back on this was i mean this was fun despite the seriousness of (laughs) of much of our conversations good to talk ball with you dude thanks for listening everybody if you got emails send them to us shed music at fangrass.com and one way or another, we'll be back here next week. Well,
Yeah. 